Hi, this is Lily, and I'm a member of the Beacon Church. Welcome to our podcast. If you're in the neighborhood, we'd love to meet you. We meet on Sundays at 9.30 and 11.30 a.m. at the Viscardi Center at 201 IU Willits Road in Albertson, New York. Beacon is a non-for-profit, and if you shop Amazon, who doesn't? You can select Beacon Church of Long Island as a supporting organization and a small portion of every purchase will go to supporting the work at Beacon. Remember to shop at smile.amazon.com and select Beacon Church of Long Island as your supporting organization. Thank you and hope to see you soon. When moments of great honor butt up against moments of shame and they go head to head, shame always wins. Uh, as many of you know, I talk about it probably too much. As I grew up, I was a wrestler, and I, I got involved when I was very young. Uh, and because I started so young, by the time I was in seventh grade, I was actually, I, I made it as a starter on the varsity lineup of the wrestling team, right? Picture this guy. All right, I wasn't quite in seventh grade at that point. But, uh, <laughs> but I, I was starting on the, the varsity lineup, which was a really a position of honor. I could walk through the halls of my middle school knowing I was a varsity athlete, and they would announce it whenever I won through the school. And it was this position of honor, and it always felt very honorable. And one time that year, I was competing in a tournament, and I did really well. And I qualified for the finals. And the way these tournaments would work is the finals would be at the very end of the tournament. And so there would often be several hours between when you qualify and when the finals were. And it was customary for the finalists to maybe leave the tournament for a little while. Go, get some rest, maybe go and grab some food together or something. The problem, of course, is that we were just wrestling. Like, we were rolling around on the mats, and we're sweaty and gross, and so you want to clean up uh, before you leave. Now, now as a, a seventh-grade boy getting to compete against young men who were juniors and seniors in high school was a tremendous honor, it really was. But being a seventh grade boy, which I was a boy, having to share a communal shower with young men who were juniors and seniors in high school was not so honorable. <laughs> hey guys, um, I'm just gonna stay over here. Uh, it was, to this day, I can't tell you if I won the tournament or not, I have no idea how I did in the finals, but I remember that awkward feeling of shame in the communal shower in uh, the locker room in upstate New York. Uh, shame is powerful. And we all have experienced shame. Brene Brown, she's a researcher who's done a lot of research on shame. Her TED Talk on shame is one of the most watched TED Talks of all time. But in there, she says that it's, it's universal. We all have it. The only people who don't experience shame have no capacity for human empathy or connection. No one wants to talk about it. And the less you talk about it, the more you have it. This shame, this I'm not good enough, which we all know that feeling. I'm not blank enough. I'm not thin enough, I'm not rich enough, beautiful enough, smart enough, promoted enough. We all, it's universal, we all have had this feeling, this sense of I'm not enough, I'm not blank enough. We've all had this experience of shame, and shame is so powerful and has this way of, if we're not careful, of keeping us stuck. Keeping us stuck, and what I want to look at today is how we, how we get unstuck from shame. By way of definition, shame is the, the painful emotional response to perceived defects and deficiencies in ourselves. 
It's perceived deficiencies and defects. Uh, and, and what I mean by that is sometimes uh, we, will, we will perceive defects and deficiencies that aren't even there. But they, they seem real to us, and we, the shame that we feel is real. There are other times where we are unaware of deficiencies and defects that are real, and we don't feel shame for those because we aren't aware of them. So there's, perception plays a big part in this. Uh, and when I talk about deficiencies, we're talking about what Brene Brown was talking about, this idea of I'm not blank enough. It's seeing all the areas in life where we don't quite measure up, where we're not enough, right? And it's not just deficiency, but also defects. It's looking at what is there and realizing that some of these things, they're flawed, they're broken, they're corrupted, they're, they're defective, Right? And it's in ourselves. It's not just about what we do. Shame is about who we are. J.D. Greer, he, he says, uh, people tend to think shame is just an ex, uh, extreme form of guilt. Like guilt on steroids. Guilt is, the, is feeling bad about something bad you did. Shame is feeling really bad about it. But while guilt can produce shame, shame is different. Guilt is focused on the what. Shame is focused on the who. Guilt says, I did something bad. Shame says, I am something bad. This idea of, of feeling bad about who we are, this negative emotional response to the deficiencies and defects that we see in the, the very core of who we are. And sometimes we, we see these deficiencies and defects come through in things that we have done. Sometimes guilt does produce shame where we, we look at things we've done in the past and we feel like those things now define us. That is who we are. Sometimes shame doesn't come from what we've done, but because of what other people have done to us. Some of you have experienced things that I can't imagine. Some of you have experienced abuse, physical or, or sexual even, or emotional abuse. Some of you have been bullied. Some of you have been in environments where people used shame to manipulate you for so long that shame is just a part of who you are. Not necessarily because of what you've done, but because of what they've done to you. Others of you, uh, you experience shame, not because of what you've done or what anybody else has done, it's just the way that things simply are. Maybe you were born with a, a, a defect or a disorder, whether it's physical or, or emotional or psychological, or there, there are desires that you have that you realize aren't good, but, but, it, but nobody did anything. It's just this, it's the way things are, and because of this, you feel shame. And for, for some of you, as we bring this up, immediately you know what your defects and deficiencies are, and you feel that. You feel that shame almost immediately because it's always before you. You live in this shame. For others of you, you don't necessarily live with the feeling of shame, but you live in the fear of shame where you're constantly racing against it. And maybe things are great in your life, but you're always waiting for the other shoe to drop. You're always waiting when you're going to be exposed because you know shame could always be right around the corner and you just try to beat it. You try to stay ahead of it. Something that uh, is called imposter syndrome. Uh, Scientific American it, it describes it like this. Imposter syndrome is a per pervasive feeling of self-doubt, insecurity, or fraudulence, despite often overwhelming evidence to the contrary. It strikes smart, successful individuals. It often rears its head after an especially notable accomplishment, like admission to a prestigious university, or public acclaim, or winning an award, or earning a promotion. It's these moments where things are actually going really well, and it seems like everything is good on the outside, but inside there's this nagging sense. Because you know, you might not know what they are, but you know there are deficiencies and defects, and you know they could come out at any point. And you know that shame could be lurking its head right around the corner, and there's this fear that you're gonna be found out. We all deal with shame. Shame is, is unavoidable, but it is treatable. We can do something about it, and that's why I what I wanna look at today. If you have a Bible, I'd love for you to open up to Colossians chapter two, beginning in verse six. 
The Apostle Paul was uh, no stranger to shame because the Apostle Paul did some really atrocious things before he was a Christian. He was actually a persecutor of Christians. He uh, was part of them being imprisoned and beaten and, and even privy to their murders. And uh, he, he did some awful things. He knew of his deficiencies and defects. He felt the shame. And so for him to be able to find a way to work through shame, it's meaningful because it's not just an abstract idea. It was a, a personal reality for him. He starts in verse 6 and he says, So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. He says, continue in Christ, all right? Your salvation started with Christ, but don't think like that's the beginning, that you start with Jesus and now you move on to like other things and you, you try new strategies. He says, no, you started with Christ, continue in him, and he, he says in verse 8, see to it that no one takes you captive, right? No one takes you captive. No one gets you stuck, right, through hollow, hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. He, he warns us. He says, avoid these hollow and deceptive strategies, and uh, Robert mentioned this a few weeks ago. We don't know what the specific philosophies and traditions Paul is writing against, uh, Colossae was destroyed uh, like a few years after Paul wrote this letter by an earthquake. And so we don't know a lot about the history of the city. Uh, and scholars are all over the place about what the specific traditions and philosophies Paul is talking about here. But we know two things about them. One, they are hollow, meaning they're, they're futile, right? And two, they're deceptive. Deceptive, meaning that uh, they aren't just meaningless, that when we... When we lean into these strategies rather than them helping us get unstuck they get us further stuck right they deceive us they give the promise of helping but only hurt us i, I remember uh, driving home from college one time, I was going to school out in Chicago, and I was living upstate in the Hudson Valley, and the whole ride was a blizzard. It was like 900 miles of just snow and fog. It was just white. And I finally make it home, and I go to pull in my driveway, but my parents had been gone for like a week, and they hadn't gotten back yet, which meant the driveway didn't get shoveled or plowed. And uh, I look at it, and I'm like, you know what? I just drove 900 miles through this. I'll just drive up onto the snow. No big deal. So I go to pull in and find out it's not snow. Uh, it is all ice. Uh, and it is so bad that my rear wheels never even made it into the driveway. Like my front two tires kind of went up and then down into the ice. And so I tried to do the rocking thing. You guys know the rocking thing. We go a little far, a little back, a little, try to get momentum to get myself out and go park in the neighbor's driveway. Uh, so I'm doing this. I'm rocking back and forth. And all the while, what I'm not realizing is the snow and ice underneath my front wheels is melting but the snow and ice under the middle of my car is not. <laughs> and before I know it, there is nothing under the front, uh, front tires of my car, and I'm just toppling on this ice. Like, I was so stuck at this point that my, tire, my wheels weren't even touching the ground. And this whole time, I thought I was doing something that was helping me get unstuck, but it was, it was deceptive, right? And these strategies that Paul is talking about, we know that they are, are hollow and deceptive. And when it comes to dealing with shame, humanity has three go-to hollow and deceptive strategies that we've been pulling off ever since shame came into the picture, right? Uh, Adam and Eve, really cool thing. Adam and Eve, God creates them, and he says, uh, and the scripture says that they were both naked and unashamed. 
right? Very cool. They were both naked and unashamed. No awkward moments in gym locker rooms for them, right? They're just naked and unashamed. And then in the very next chapter, they sin and shame comes into the world and they try three different things that are, are hollow and deceptive strategies. And there's three things that I think we still try today. The first is they cover themselves with fig leaves, right? It seems pretty innovative. It's like, oh, I'm naked. Let me just grab something. They start grabbing fig leaves and they sew them together and they make some clothes out of them, which is nice. You know, it fits, it covers all of the bits and all of that. Uh, but the problem with a leaf is once you cut it off the tree, it doesn't last very long, right? Like, if you look outside now, there actually aren't any leaves around. Uh, I don't know what their winter plan was. But, uh, but with fig leaves, you, you cut them off, and in just a short while, they would wither and die. Very often, when it comes to trying to deal with our shame, we try to, to cover it up with these strategies that are fleeting, these strategies that wither and die pretty quickly. And so we go after things like success, and we think, maybe if I can just get this next achievement, then I won't, I won't feel that sense of shame anymore. I can kind of cover over that sense of shame, and we get that achievement. It feels great for a moment, but it, very soon after, it withers and dies, and we need to replace it with another fig leaf. We need to go out and find another achievement. Or maybe it's, it's financial status, or maybe it's material items that we go after. If I can just get this one thing, or maybe it's a relationship. It's like boyfriend, or girlfriend, or husband, or wife. If I, if I could have this relationship, then it would take away that feeling of shame. But every time you get it, it's fleeting. And shortly after, it starts to wither and die. And now you need to go and get another fig leaf. We can even do it with religion, where we can try to, you know, do good things or read our Bible or, or get involved in the church. And we, we start adding these fig leaves. But every time we, we get to the next level, all of a sudden, we need something else because the last fig leaf is starting to wither and die. It is a hollow and deceptive strategy. And it didn't work for Adam and Eve. And so they, they tried something else. They tried to hide themselves. All right? God comes in and is like, where are you? And they're hiding themselves, which seems weird to me that they would play hide and seek with God. Uh, I know they were new. They didn't get the rules. Uh, but they're hiding from God. And, and it makes sense because if you can hide all of you, you can hide your defects and you can hide your deficiencies. And nobody gets to see them. You can just kind of keep them covered. But of course, if you're hiding your deficiencies and your defects, you're also hiding the rest of you, which means nobody gets to see you. Nobody gets to really know you. And I think in our day and age, it's, this is especially popular among men, where we, we hide. We're hiding in plain sight, but we keep everyone at kind of arm's length. We never get, let any relationship get too deep because we don't want to be seen. We're afraid that if people see our flaws, see our defects and our, our deficiencies, that things are going to fall apart and the shame will be unbearable. And so we just kind of keep people pushing them away. And we, we don't really have friends. And we even keep our spouses at, at arm's length. And, and when things are going wrong, nobody knows about it until it turns into a catastrophe. And shame, it loves this. Shame loves to get us alone. It loves to keep us isolated because and when we're isolated and alone, that's where we get tempted into doing more shameful things. See, it's a hollow and deceptive strategy to try and hide our shame. They f tried the fig leaves. They tried hiding. And the third thing they tried to do is shifting the blame. 
right? Eve was like, well, the serpent made me do it. And Adam's like, well, Eve kind of did it. And God, it's also kind of your fault because you put the woman here. And so they, they tried to shift the blame, which works really effectively for the moment, right? It's like, take the spotlight off of me and my defects and my deficiencies and shine them on somebody else. And I can scoot by another day. And it, it seems to work. And it's still a really popular method today. But I, I think in, in our day and age, there's a unique expression of this. This, this kind of feels new and different. So what we try to do as 21st century Americans is we don't necessarily blame other people, although we do that, but we blame shame. We put the blame on shame. And we say the problem is shame itself, that I'm not the problem. Like, that, that shame is the problem, that nobody should ever feel ashamed for who they are. Th this is the narrative that says it's your flaws that make you beautiful which sounds so empowering and so sweet, right? But as soon as you try to apply that same idea to other spheres of life, you see how hollow and deceptive it is, right? Because imagine you go to a car dealership to turn in a car, trade in a car, and you're like, it's got these bumps and scratches and at least a little bit of oil, but really it's the flaws that make it beautiful, don't they? It doesn't fly, right? Like, and if there's any men who are thinking about getting proposed, you should totally try to do this when you're like with the ring. It's like, I was going to get you a flawless diamond, but those are so ugly. Yeah, no, no, everybody knows it's the scratches, it's the defects, it's the flaws that make a diamond beautiful, right? <laughs> Lindsay and I have been uh, accumulating child baby stuff on Craigslist and everything like that. It's amazing. Nobody in their Craigslist ad ever says, you know, lists out all of the defects and says, these are the things that really make this special. Because flaws don't make something special. And in some ways, this is the most deceptive of the strategies because it, it is so dishonoring to us as human beings. Because what we're doing is we're lowering the bar for what humanity is and what we are capable of. And we're saying, well, this is what beautiful looks like. This is what beauty looks like. But it's insulting. It's patronizing. Like when you play a game with a kid, right, and a child, it, it's empowering for you to take it easy on them and let them win, right? But if you do that with an adult, it's insulting. And this is what we're doing when we're saying, like, my flaws make me, we're lowering the bar, we're patronizing ourselves, we're dishonoring ourselves, and we're dishonoring the God who created us in his image. It's a hollow and deceptive strategy. It didn't work for Adam and Eve, and it hasn't worked for anyone ever since. But there is hope. The Apostle Paul actually does show us that we can deal with our shame. There's things that we could do to actually deal with it for real. He gives us three things in uh, this passage. He shows us how Jesus, how he, uh, he shares his fullness, he bears our defects, and he tames shame. In verse 9, he says, For in Christ, in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And in Christ, you have been brought to fullness. Right? He says, all the fullness is in Jesus. And you, even though you are deficient, even though you're not full, in Christ, you are brought to fullness. It's like, this is you. This is me. You know, this is all of us. We got this cup. This is us. And there are deficiencies, right? And we try through these strategies to, to deal with it, whether we're, we're just constantly trying to come back to the source and, you know, get a little more full. But there's always this deficiency that's there. And so we can try to hide it. We can try to divert people's attention away from it. But that deficiency is there. And Paul is saying, no, 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 no. Don't just, like, come to Jesus and kind of dip your toe in. What he's saying is if you are in Christ, it doesn't matter how full you are. 
going in, you become full. He shares with you his fullness. You could be, you know, you could be half full, three quarters full, half empty or half full. I don't know. You guys decide. Uh, Quarter full. You could be completely empty. It doesn't actually matter how much is in the glass going in. If you are in Christ, you are made full because his fullness is what makes us full. And so we can say, even that song we were singing earlier, we could say, I am not enough, but in Christ I am made enough because what's true of him becomes true of me. He shares his fullness with us, and then he bears our defects. In verse 13, he says, when you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive, right? When you were dead, when you're feeling the weight of all of that, he says, God made you alive with Christ. It says he forgave us all our sins. How, how much of our sins? How much? All of them, right? Not like most of them, not the majority of them, all of our sins. Having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. So it wasn't just that there was this charge against us that made us guilty, but there was this condemnation. It wasn't just about what we did, but it was about who we are. We ourselves were being condemned. There was this shame on us, and it says that he has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And I, I know this is like, this is Christianity 101. Jesus died for our sins. He forgives our sins. I get that. You know that, right? Uh, but, but do you know that Jesus didn't just bear your guilt? Jesus bore your shame. I think we can miss this as Christians. I think we could think that Jesus cleared up our legal charge, but then for the rest of our lives, we have to carry around this sense of shame because of things we've done or the things that have been done to us and that we need to bear the weight of this. But Jesus didn't just die for your guilt. He died for your shame. And Paul says he took it away and he nailed it to the cross. And for me, I get this picture in my head of God listing out uh, our, our defects and our deficiencies on a list of paper, right? Taking that list of paper and then nailing it to the cross. Like, that's what immediately comes to mind when I, I read this. But God didn't nail a piece of paper to the cross. God nailed his son to the cross because God didn't take your defects and your deficiencies and write them on a list. He took them and he embodied them in his son. His son who was stripped and made into a spectacle and shame was poured out upon him on our behalf, because he was bearing your shame. About a year and a half ago, I was at a seminar in the city uh, with the Ravi Zacharias Ministries. Uh, you, some of you might have heard of it before, but I heard a story that so, uh, so well pictures this, and rather than me trying to tell the story and butchering it, I actually found a video of her telling it, the, the story that day, and I just wanted to share it with you. I was part of a week of outreach on UC Berkeley's campus in California, and I actually happened to be giving a talk on International Women's Day. Now, as you can imagine, International Women's Day is a very big deal on campus at UC Berkeley. All over campus that day, women were protesting, they were yelling, there were marches, there were rallies, it was angry. You know, right in the middle of this kind of hectic, chaotic scene, on the main thoroughfare of campus, there stood a girl who was wearing fishnet tights and a very short skirt, and she was completely topless, and she had a paper bag over her head with just her eyes cut out. It was kind of this public spectacle. And you could see that people didn't know what to do with this. Some people, as they approached, they would laugh. They would kind of scorn her. They would mock her. Other people would just turn away and, and hurry on because you know, they, didn't, they didn't know what to do. 
But then as you got closer to her, as you got close enough, you could see um, written on the paper bag were these words, all five of my rapists are getting away with it. And then you looked into her eyes and they were just completely haunted. And that was the point when your own heart broke. Now, I don't really have words for that moment. And yet at the same time, looking into the eyes of a woman who was in so much pain, I'd never felt more grateful or relieved to know that the God of the Bible is real. To be able to say that right and wrong aren't just personal preference, but that what happened to her was objectively, abhorrently evil. To be able to say that she's not just a cosmic accident, uh, that her worth is not defined by anything she's done or what has been done to her, but by the fact she's made in the image of God and therefore she's sacred. And to know that even though human justice have failed her, that divine justice will not because there's a God who is unshakably committed to both love and justice. And that runs right through from the Old to the New Testament, from the beginning to the end. We know that the judge of all the earth will do what is right. And yet at the very same time, to know that the unfailing love of God also means that no matter how defaced or dehumanized she'd been made to feel, and no matter what kind of bag or mask she was wearing over her head, there was a God who could see right to the heart of her. And who would see her with such compassion in her harassed and helpless state that in Christ, who is willing to be identified with her, to be stripped naked and exposed like her, to undergo public humiliation and ridicule, to become one from whom men would hide their faces, to experience what it's like to wear nothing but shame and to endure unimaginable violence, suffering and isolation, all because he couldn't bear to stand by and watch from a distance. Instead, out of love, he came right alongside her and he suffered with her and for her. This young woman's experience of shame, it left her exposed and turned her into a public spectacle. And here we have Jesus, who instead of running from this, he chooses to be exposed, stripped naked, paraded through town, scorned and laughed at and turned into a public spectacle to bear our shame, to bear your shame, to bear the defectiveness that is within us, all of it, not, not most of it, so you bear the rest of it. No, he bore all of your shame on the cross. And then he did something really cool. He doesn't stop there. He goes on and he, he actually tames shame itself for us. Look at what Paul says in verse 15. It says, having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. If you've ever felt like shame has this, this supernatural power behind it to like really just haunt you, it's because it does. That shame is one of the enemy's favorite tools. Satan is actually called the accuser, the accuser of the saints. And he loves to come alongside of us and to accuse us and to heap the shame onto us and to whisper it into our ear to remind you how defective and deficient you are and to, to try and get you to be convinced that you are unlovable and that God doesn't love you. He loves to do this. It is, is one of his favorite tools to tear us down. And here we have Jesus at the cross making a public spectacle 
of Satan and all of these other spiritual forces that actually want to use shame against us. These, these forces that have been taking it and trying to tear you down, using shame as a tool to tear you down. Jesus, it says he, he disarms them. And the word that's used here for disarms, it literally means to disrobe, to strip down. He takes these spiritual forces, he strips them down. He leaves them naked and makes a public spectacle of them. I love the way the ESV translates this verse. It says he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame. So the, the very same forces that want to use shame against you, Jesus took and he put them to shame. And he conquered them and he reclaimed shame and he tamed it so that we can actually use it. Instead of us working for shame, shame now gets to work for the Christian. Because this is important. Shame is good when it's, when it's connected to something true. When I do something shameful, it's good for me to feel shame. But the point of that shame is to actually lead me back to the cross. Because in Christ, at the cross, I find fullness. And I find my shame being dealt with, but it's when I stray from Jesus that I, I re-engage in shameful things. And for me to feel shame in those moments is good because then it can drink, bring me back to Jesus. But, but when these spiritual forces take control of it, they make it something that is so much greater, so much worse than it actually is. And it becomes something we, we try to avoid and run from. But Jesus, he put them to shame and he tamed shame so that we can use it. He defanged it. He neutered it so that we can now use shame. We don't have to run from it. We don't have to hide from it. We can actually step out into it. And, and this is what I'm going to ask you to do. Because on all of this passage, God does the heavy lifting. The whole th time. It's like he raised us. He made us alive. He is the one who bore our shame. He's the one who brought us the fullness. He does all the heavy lifting. But in verse 12, he just says there's one thing that we contribute. And it's your faith. Your faith, and your faith isn't just believing that he exists, but it's, it's your faith that this work is real, that he really is sharing his fullness. You're trusting that he really did bear your shame. And if he's doing that, that means you can now come out of hiding. You can actually step out in faith, not fearing what shame can do to you because he, he, he put those powers to shame. He destroyed their authority. Revelation 12, 10, it says, Now have come the salvation and the powers in the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah for the accuser of your brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down and they, you, have triumphed over him by the blood of the lamb. You don't have to fear them anymore. You don't have to fear the shame that they're going to heap on you. Jesus, Jesus put them to shame so that you can step out of hiding. And this is what I want to encourage you to do. In the next few weeks... Step out. Step out of hiding. Find someone, find someone that you can actually share some of these, these deeper things with. The things that you're afraid to share. The things that you feel like if these come out, man, no one's going to love me. Or people are going to see that I'm, I'm worthless or defective. Those things that you're, you're hiding. I encourage you to find someone to share these with. If you don't have someone to share these with, I encourage you to get involved in a small group because these are communities that we're trying to foster to be able to do this. And if your small group isn't this kind of community, work to help make your small group this kind of community where you can come out of hiding, to open up, to take this step of faith, to know, you know, say, shame doesn't rule me anymore. And here and now, I want to also give you the opportunity to come out of hiding before your God.
and I'm going to have the band come up, and we're going to go right to the table of communion. We're going to do things a, a little bit differently. But as uh, the band comes up, they're going to sing a song, and, and this particular song, I want to encourage you, don't sing this song. Uh, let this song be a song that is sung over you. That this be a, a time for you to be reminded that God is calling you out of hiding to let you know you don't have to fear shame anymore because he's, he's filling your deficiencies by sharing his fullness. That he's, he's dealing with your defects because he bore your shame at the cross. That you don't have to fear stepping out. Adam and Eve, after they, they came out of hiding, God didn't look at them and say, oh my goodness, what did you do? Shame on you guys. How could you do this? He told them the consequences of their actions and they were severe, but then he did something that no one would have expected. God took animals and he, he actually killed them. And this is the first time in the Bible that we see anything dying. And it was actually at God's hand. God took these animals and he shed their blood. And he took their skins. And he, he covered Adam and Eve and their nakedness and their shame. See, when we step out of hiding, we don't have to fear what God's going to do. Because when we step out of hiding, what he's going to do is he's going to cover our sin and shame. And even all of this was just a foreshadow of what we, we get to celebrate when we come to the table of communion. That we're coming to the cross. And as we step out before our God, we own our shame. That it's the body of Christ that he covers us with. And that it's the blood of Christ shed on the cross that makes us clean again. I invite you to stand. And as the band plays this song, let this time be a time for you to reflect and for you to step out of hiding. And the things that you're afraid to confess to your God, things that you feel are too much, let them go and know that Jesus, he's sharing his fullness with you and he's bearing your defects.